Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. Join us on our journey into the past, the present, and the future as we explore the relationship between technology and humanity. Together, we're going to find out what it means to live in a society where everything is connected and the only constant is change. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. All right, let's All get right. going. Sean, story time. Well, it is story time, and uh, the question is: it, Is it a real story time or an artificial story time? Well, I don't, I don't see the difference anymore. To be honest with it's, you, it's, it's uh, all story time. All story yeah. Time and, yeah. And I think we're at the point where uh, fiction and reality they're coming together, and virtual it's part of our life. So. Exactly. Let's bring it on. It's an unusual exactly. gathering anyway. It so is an unusual gathering. So th this is going to get unusual. Uh, the, the title isn't re reflective of our guests necessarily. <laughs> Sometimes it may be, but uh, we, we love our guests and we actually have uh, a co-host joining us. He's been on the show in, in many forms and many ways, talking about all kinds of stuff with us. Scott Shefferman joining us to help us drive this conversation. And he was kind enough to introduce us to Joyce Groen who uh, I believe he did a panel with on this topic today. And uh, it's one we're gonna have some fun with. And it's one that uh, actually Scott contributed to uh, an article that I wrote for you, I guess, three, four years ago. And it's all about marketing mess of AI and ML, artificial intelligence and machine learning and what's real, what's not. And hence the, is it real today? And today's conversation will be real. Uh, Scott quick word for you and then about yourself and then we'll uh, turn it to Joyce to get yeah. some background on what she's up to. No, great. J just, uh, you guys also know me as Shaggy sometimes I'm on the show, but today I'm uh, just me as a co-host and it's, it's an honor to have Joyce here. Uh, I met Joyce, like, uh, like you said, at that privacy and, and, and AI conference up in Victoria and that was phenomenal. So um, we're lucky to have her. Um, I'm you know, cyber vet veteran 20 years uh, doing lots of instant response work, consulting for the DOD for about 15 years of that and in the vendor space, mostly in the endpoint space for the last six or seven years together. Um, and I've uh, do advising on the side, consulting, um, strategic advising, et cetera. And I've been doing that independently now since about April. So having a good time doing that. Yeah, and, and deeply involved in pushing the envelope in, in tech, certainly from uh, algorithm and, and uh, AI and ML perspective. Hence, uh, hence <laughs> you joining us. So thanks, Scott and Joyce. A pleasure. A little bit about yourself. Pleasure. So, um, so yeah, I work for um, Deloitte in a division that we call Omnia AI um, out of Vancouver. I'm a partner here and we work across with all industries, public sector, private sector to provide end-to-end um, -end artificial intelligence solutions from data to analytics insights to AI solutions. And so, you know, probably 20 years across public and private sector, um, you know, consulting and actually working for different organizations. So happy to be here and thanks for inviting me. I don't have a cool nickname, so I'll have to find one. <laughs> Shaggy's taken already, so. Shaggy's taken. 
We're all going to be Shaggy 1, Shaggy 2, Shaggy 3, and Shaggy 4. That's right. (laughs) The the question is how many Shaggies are there (laughs) in in terms of identity? Yeah, and how many are real or which one is the clone or who is who? (laughs) But uh, no, this is exciting. And and just just the idea that you said end-to-end artificial intelligence for me is already like a full conversation. (laughs) And and I may have a million questions about that. But maybe, Sean, you want to bring it from the beginning of what uh, was going on you know, the, the, the original idea, and we go from there, because that's fun conversation to marketing and artificial it intelligence. It is, and that, that's why I spend so much time in it. I mean, it was a three-part piece. Um, I typically don't write that much. I had a lot of help with that. The, the idea, and this was four years ago, and I, I thought maybe it would have tapered off by now, but just the, the whole idea that companies and people using these terms, AI and ML, to get people's attention, right? To say, we can do something that's cooler than the other people that, that uh, compete with us and therefore you should buy our stuff. And then of course, everybody started saying it. So the, the real question was, what is it? Does it even work? And, mm-hmm. and are we just being sold a, a bill of goods here? Uh, is it a bunch of snake oil? So four years ago, I'm gonna start with you, Scott, cause you, you helped put that piece together have things changed much in four years from yeah so both uh, both ends right so so what i'll do is joyce i'll let you talk about what you feel like has changed in the actual academic the actual space the Mm -hmm. actual hard work of of ai what i'll tell you sean is what i think has changed in the industry is um you know four years ago right around the time we did that uh you had to be compelled as a customer to that AI was real or that it could work or that it might work or that it could be trusted or that it wouldn't break your, your enterprise or your operations or your mission. And today that's not the case today. It's more of like, um, almost like everybody has a CSSP as a minimum barrier certificate to, to get into the industry. Now it's, it's kind of like that for every vendor has some math story of some sort, whether it's market tees or it's, um, or it's actual real tech. Um, I think what the big shift is, is that the industry is not only accepting of it, but expects it as part of the dialogue, but they're less concerned with how are you doing your AI or, you know, how many features are you extracting for your model or, um, you know, all these kind of questions. And they're more asking questions like, okay, how do you actually show me that the AI matters to me? Like, what's the ROI? You know, what decisions can I make better or faster uh, or faster than we can as humans uh, in a certain narrow function or whatever. So um, I think that's the big shift I've seen. I mean, the marketing's still ablaze, like you said, if you go to RSA or uh, or Black Hat or whatever. Um, and I expect virtual Black Hat to be the same way this year as we all look at our Zoom monitors and talk about the AIs. But but there's there's more than acceptance. There's an expectation that that a board can go to a system and say, can you show me how you're using AI to, to do things better, to help us be more secure, or to reduce friction for the CIO office? Um, those kind of questions, I think, are more, much more commonplace and accepted. Yeah, I'd say that there's a there's a divide between um, those that are, I'll call them more AI literate, the executive, and then those ones that, that aren't. And um, there's a difference between what I've seen between what I'll call the science experiments that people conduct and then the practical reality of where AI is actually being used, which is actually the boring stuff, right? So things that are manual, you know, things that are boring and repetitive, that's actually where the most benefit from AI has actually come in the kind of general um, industries that we've been working with. So the ones that actually think about the cool science experiments where we hire the data scientists and they want to actually do them, 
Um, those are probably fewer and farther between than I'd say the boring stuff that's like, let's, let's automate this contract process and let's use AI to kick out the exceptions or let's look at this expense report, you know, gathering and things like that. Those are probably more common and you'll probably see a bigger ROI initially than some of the science experiments that they're probably uh, cooler to think about. And, and is it, I'm sure Marco's itching to get in here, but is it a matter of driving action or is that still far out or are we, are we still at a point where it's to help drive decisions by people or is it purely just to help identify what's going on and, and then it's up to the people to analyze even more. So I know that the ultimate goal is people don't do anything. It just happens for us. But how, how yeah. far along that spectrum are we? Uh, well, I think it depends on the organization. The AI first companies and the more literate ones clearly are already there. And then there's kind of the bulk of the masses that use things, but not, aren't actually even 100% sure that they're using AI. Like they, you know, there's a, you know, Deloitte had done a survey recently um, up in Canada where 50% of the people didn't realize that they were using AI on a daily basis when they went on Google Maps or when they went on Amazon, they didn't realize that AI was even necessarily being used. There's a certain level of literacy that the organizations need to have. And we had this interesting discussion where we said that executives are actually required to be like, you know, HR professionals or financial professionals and have leadership capability, but we haven't actually tasked our leaders to actually be, be technology literate, which in this day and age, they actually do need to be technology literate. So that actually holds a lot back because when you're having these, you know, C-suite discussions, sometimes they're, I'd say sometimes they're a little bit embarrassed to ask or say they don't understand exactly what you're talking about right now. And so COVID-19 has been really interesting from that perspective, because as you know, we're all on the Zoom meeting right now, we're kind of Zoomed out. Um, everything's gone fairly virtual and actually forced them into a position to start thinking about how they actually advance. And so it's actually weirdly kind of a bit of a renaissance for technology at this stage right now. Well, I'm going to jump in because I think as Scott, you know, we, we like to go philosophical sometimes. And I guess that's why I'm here. I'm not here for the tech part, but for the philosophy kind of part, the philosophy <laughs> society part. And, and I've read, you know, I, I really enjoy reading all these amazing books for like Bergstrom and Tegmark and Stuart Russell. And at the end, you always have to make that big difference between what is the artificial intelligence that we have now, which is a narrow artificial intelligence versus this vision of the future, who knows when, when we will reach like a general artificial intelligence. And so it's kind of like, am I reading an, a, a, let's say an, a, a fantasy book that could become reality, which will become reality, but it's not reality now, or we need to really understand, as Joy say, what is that we are using artificial intelligence for right now and what is the benefit of having it without big lies but explaining to the business people this is what we can do and stop bullshitting for what you cannot do right now so go for it uh i okay so i'll, I'll take a stab at that and i'm curious if joyce sees the same kind of trend in, in all the field joyce let me ask you an open question first do, do you what percentage of the work that you do or that you have done is focused on cybersecurity, if any, versus uh, applying math where it needs to be applied regardless of the, of the topic area? Yeah, um, cybersecurity actually is a big seller right now. Um, there's been enough breaches right now where um, I guess the, the t terminology that I use, it takes a Terminator to kill a Terminator. So 
um, from that perspective, you know, Bob and Joe, you know, sitting in their job from 8.30 to 4.30 and they don't go to any courses or anything aren't necessarily going to be doing it. So I'd say that cybersecurity is usually where people get dragged into AI first um, because uh. they actually realize that as a organizational and reputational risk for them not to do that. So, so Scott will always have a job from that perspective <laughs> that um, cybersecurity will always be a thing. And I'd say that they actually probably I'd say clients will accept that AI is actually in cybersecurity from looking at attack path monitoring to, you know, looking at how um, they're going to actually manage, you know, active, active, um, active engagements that are going on um, from a cyber perspective. The other ones are a little bit harder because they're discretionary. I think cyber kind of feels like it's non-discretionary anymore. Like you have to do it. And, um, and the other ones where you're saying, should I improve my business by using AI? That's still a decision, right? And so you, you really have to decide on whether or not you're going to make money or save money and chase a green dollar out the door. And that's still a decision. The other one is a little easier. It's like, we have to do it. So it's almost like cyber is something that is, uh, is becoming more common. We have to do it and it's going to be AI. So in cyber, there is actually a return on investment. I mean, there is a concrete, yeah. concrete advantage right. of using yep. AI. Yep. So, Good. So Marco, so you, you just said the word advantage. Um, and what I, what I do when I, you know, consulting on cybersecurity, especially like in the areas of incident response, like Joyce just mentioned, right? Mm -hmm. I think there's a huge quantum shift about to hit the industry right now because we've been focusing so much on what you might call um, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the need for visibility, for lack of better words, right? This is a massive buzzword and, and concept people will keep working within. But I would argue that after three and a half years or so of doing you know, consulting and, uh, and, and seeing instant responses unfold and then watching the, the, the hot wash and watching the, the, you know, the root cause analysis of what, what actually happened, how did they get in? When you answer all those questions, it turns out you actually had most of the visibility that you could ever want. The problem is you just didn't um, have it fast enough to make a decision that mattered in front of the impact of that event, whether that's a destructive event or yep. a breach, a privacy breach or, or some kind of other uh, cyber event. So I think the emphasis needs to be on the advantage, again, your word, of doing things faster to, to get ahead of an adversary that's moving, like Joyce just said, terminator on terminator speed, machine speed, machine on machine speed, if you will. Like, so mm -hmm. we think of our adversaries as the cloak at the keyboard with the dark hoodie. It's, that's not what's going on. It's actually code on code, right? So um, given that, I think uh, where AI can really help us, just like it did with like retinal uh, image examinations, where it's on par with doctors that do this very, very well at 95% determining whether or not you have a retinal disease. The difference is it could do like thousands of images in a few minutes, whereas humans can back up for days or weeks. It's within those, that time frame that you might go blind as a patient. So did AI help us because of its efficacy being on par or better than the human expert, or did it help us because it's actually done the same thing faster? And I think when, you're, when you have an adversary, whether it's a disease or a code, automated code or a, or a cloaked hoodie hacker. Um, in all cases, when you have an adversary, speed is the advantage we need to get towards. And I think between a quantum evolution we're hitting and uh, where AI is taking us, we can actually leverage AI to get faster to do things yeah. that matter. I'd say that where it stops it, so to go, Mar Marco, back to your uh, philosophical um, bent is, is that a chief executive or an executive is happy to hear from a from a machine perspective, what the cybersecurity issues are. A human isn't necessarily want a machine to tell them that they have retinal problems, right? 
So they still want a human to tell them that a hu that you're going to have problems or you're, you have three months left to live. Um, nobody necessarily at this stage wants a machine to tell them that. And so there's a psychological barrier between where AI is used right now, where in cyber, I'd say that people almost consider cyber um, um, insurance, right? So I just saw this organization, um, you know, get all their data with a crypto locker on it. That could be me. You know, I know somebody there. I'm going to buy it now. Um, but the other one, not so much now. Still have to make some decisions on exactly whether or not they want to spend the money on that. Okay. And I, and I love that you use the, uh, the, the story almost as an, as an example. Uh, humans don't want the machine telling them that story about their health, right? They want, want a person to do that. And we've also touched on the fact that AI and ML are kind of table stakes now. Uh, the companies mm -hmm. expect it to be there. So I'm wondering how those stories shape up. I guess what I'm really trying to figure out is do companies even care what is underneath is it ai and ml and are there is there a difference there or is it still just okay they can say it now and i've heard some success from other people saying it does something but can they trust it is there a difference between ai and ml and how do the stories play into help understanding what's underneath and does it matter i don't know if it matters um, I can drive a car without knowing how to fix it or, or how, how it works. Um, but the trust issue is a, is, is a good question, right? Um, I don't know how the car uh, works exactly or how to build one or, or how, what's underneath the hood, but I trust that it'll get me from A to B, right? Um, do I trust that the AI will give me the same answer as a human? Um, weirdly, I'd say that most of the clients that I work with hold AI to a higher standard than they do humans. So let's go with like simple optical character recognition, right? Um, human probably not as good. And, and to Scott's point, even around reading x-rays or reading retinal scans, you know, the 45-year-old doctor who's starting to go myopic isn't going to read it better than a machine does. But yet we still trust um, the uh, radiologist to read it more than we do um, the machine. So the question now is, how do we increase the level of trust that people have, um, even though they're holding it to a higher standard? So optical character recognition, you know, it can be like greater than 90% accurate, you know, even when we scan like checks and see where the dates and the, and the bank transit numbers are and stuff like that. It's pretty accurate now. Um, but a human's actually less accurate, yet somehow people feel a little bit better giving their check to a human than they do giving it to a machine. So it's a trust factor, I think, rather than understanding what's underneath the hood factor. Yeah, and it's also coming a lot of psychological factor in that, like That's right. how long this person has been doing this, or is the, the director of the clinic for you know optical uh, surgery, and so he must know what he's talking about, That's right. right? But mm -hmm. not necessarily. So Human I think like, years, dog years, AI years. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, yeah, I, I, a lot of people still perceive um, machine learning and artificial intelligence as something of the future. They're not, they're not accepting, as you said at the beginning, uh, Joyce, the, the fact that it's already a beam around us, like flying airplanes and, and help us even to book our tickets if we want to talk about travel. But there, there is definitely that psychological factor where we're going to need probably both human and um, to bring the human factor, then the machine alone to come and tell you, hey, here's the receipt of your scan. Mm -hmm. You've got a problem. 
I mean, we're missing the humanity in this relationship. So mm -hmm. that's another thing to consider. But to know that there is an engine under the hood that you may want to drive that car, but that engine has the capability that are way better than any field like that's right. pedaling. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, I, I think it'll make a big difference, but we need to educate people for that. So, so can I just, Joyce, let me ask you a question. So in, in, you know, in cybersecurity, as you know, um, before we had ML in the industry, let's go back like seven years or something, right? Mm -hmm. um, we didn't have very much, right? We had automation, but not really ML, right? So um, the, the question that comes to mind is in, in cybersecurity, we've often said as practitioners that uh, you, you can't just learn this overnight and get a degree in it and boom, you hit the field and you're effective because there's so much right. mm -hmm. context moving part. There's a human adversary like we just talked about. Um, and all that moves very fast and it's hard for one person to just keep up, let alone be effective as a practitioner. Um, but when it comes to now fast forward to now to like the age of ML, a lot of the tasks that you mentioned that are remedial or mundane are, have been automated. Maybe mm -hmm. there's ML involved. A lot of decisions are being made in narrow spaces using AI, right? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that we don't have that awkward gap of understanding what is under that hood, right? And to the extent that as a practitioner, you don't understand that, a lot of times you don't have things like adaptability or anticipation or, or intuition even um, of understanding what's going on when, when you don't have all the answers clearly in front of you. So um, I think you're 100% correct with uh, like the, the psychological marketing aspect of this where people are much more, you don't need to know what's under hood to buy a car, 100%, right? Mm -hmm. uh, same with AI, because it, if the results are there and by gosh, they're saving lives or saving people from going blind, Blind or blonde, for that matter. Whichever one. <laughs> or any hair color for that matter. Yeah. Um, then, then the good news is uh, it works. And we, so we buy the thing. But I think in cybersecurity, we're up against this awkward challenge and, and probably other fields as well that you know better than I do. That if you don't understand as a practitioner, we run this risk of, 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 of up-leveling our, our decision-making too high as a human where we don't understand the stratus underneath us. Do we buy... Sorry, Joyce, but do we buy a car because we think there's something cool there, even if we don't understand how it works? Do we, do we buy that car knowing that, that it's going to give us some capabilities that we can't find in another, another model? And if it was a, I mean, we have some that are relatively new brands mm -hmm. and we trust them with that new technology and new code and new systems. Um, does going kind of back to that age thing I was joking about earlier, do we care how old the technology is if we're going to trust it? And, and then does it matter? And is there anybody kind of looking after that for us if we're not able to? Yeah, I, I think the, what you're mentioning, um, Sean, is absolutely right is, is that, yeah, people buy things just because it makes them feel better. It gives them a status that they're looking for to say, I work with AI and whether they understand whether what that means or not, then it sounds cool, right? Um, and they, they might want to buy it. I think that the trust factor around AI is also um, interesting from the perspective that you don't know where it ends. So we started off this conversation by saying, you know, we're in narrow AI and, you know, we'll get to general AI. Is that the goal? Like, did, it, did anyone agree that that was the goal, right? Um, you know, I, I had this question, that I can't remember if it was the panel that um, uh, Sean, you, sorry, Scott, you and I were on where um, someone said, because in Canada, we actually, we, I think we're the third largest um, concentration of AI graduates in the world. We have Turing Prize winners in, in, in Vector Institute and at um, Mila in Montreal, and we export them all. 
right? They go to, they go to Los Angeles, they go to London, they're everywhere. And the question was, are we losing the battle for AI? Someone said, is Canada losing the battle for AI? So the question was, what's the battle, right? Like, what are we trying to win? And so if we're trying to win that we have, you know, state sponsorship where we actually do 100% facial recognition for everyone that walks around the street, did we want that, right? Um, so the question is now, what are we trying to get to? And I think that's where the trust factor is difficult for some people because they're like, oh, if I start using AI now, it's going to be, you know, the Terminator scenarios coming around the corner. And is that, you know, there is a there is a question around where do we want to get to? And not enough people have spent time saying that this is as far as we want to go or, you know, let's get there and then break it open and decide how much further we want to go. But it's kind of wild west in terms of how far it'll go right now. Nobody knows. And so then there's a lack of trust around if I don't know where I'm driving to, to use the car analogy again, then I don't trust getting into the car. Um, so I'll just hang on for a little while longer. And so that's example of that. Think about this, Joyce. Um, Google clicks, you know, those little square cameras about the yep. size of yep. And what mm -hmm. they do is replace the photographer. They look for cute kids and, and animals and pets and cats or whatever. And they get the frame right. The AI locally on the device says, take that picture. It's going to be cute. And later the user uploads that to their phone and they can share with their family. At, on the surface, they're not dumb. They used cute things on, for a reason, right? They didn't say, let's mm -hmm. invent a camera that takes pics of like ugly things or sensitive things or private things. Or they said, let's do the cute kid cat thing because who doesn't want that? But that's just the first stage, right? I think mm -hmm. didn't Elon Musk have a quote on Twitter about that or something saying, um, well, I, I certainly don't want to misquote uh, Elon, but you know, he, he's a, he opines a lot and has a lot of philosophical background in the field and contributes to the field of AI in general. And I think he looked at that problem space. He goes, what part of about this is not going to end well? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like right. what, what part will end well? Because if right now it's disconnected, but what happens when it's just like ubiquitous and when you have a real-time connection with your phone or what's, what's phase two of that? And I'm not saying there's anything malicious with that project whatsoever. Hopefully that's the end state and we're all happy. But it, AI doesn't, there are some quantum leaps, but it kind of creeps along. It just, it just right. inches along and, 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 and we just inch along with it. And it's like the frog in the pot. At some point, what happens is you start to boil and you say, okay, whoa, I don't want facial recognition to your example, Joyce, right? Maybe I don't want that. Maybe if I could, oh, there's a study that just came out. There's a, there's a bill on the table at the house, I think, that says we want to use facial recognition to predict criminals. And right. they, they said mm -hmm. that to the, right, the AI and the cybersecurity community as well. And Mm -hmm. What did the experts do? Well, thank God they blew holes in it saying, do you, to your point, just do you even want this? Like, let's say it was perfect, like mm -hmm. flawlessly predicted, like the math was immaculate. Do you want that? Right. So we don't stop to ask that just because we can build it. Should we be willing? I think that happens in okay. cybersecurity a lot too. Well, yeah. Scott, you know, you know what it makes me think when you say something like that is like perfect. What does a perfect mean? Because if for artificial for intelligence, we want... <laughs> the perfection of being as intelligent as human, I think we're way far from being perfect anyway. We have bias, we're bringing all that stuff into the algorithms, right? I mean, this is a conversation we need to have. So how much do you want to amplify that flaws that we have into a, a general machine super intelligence? Because that's where the problem goes. So I don't even know if we know what our own intelligence is. So shouldn't we be a little bit more conservative as many researchers are saying, where maybe when we give a scope on a goal to NNI, we need to be very precise on how we define that scope because 
there is a lot of things that can go wrong when you misunderstand what the objective is. It, there's no going back eventually. So as Joy said, I think the problem is we expect too much from this artificial intelligence maybe. Um, making moral decisions for us. Shouldn't we retain that capability? It's interesting, Marco, because I don't think anyone's agreed where it's going, right? <laughs> That's so, the problem, right? So that's the problem. So that's the problem. So that's why I'm saying is that if the start question was, where am I seeing most of the client work right now? It is going to be, it is the boring stuff because it's safe. I can see a return on investment for it, right? Um, nobody wants to do the boring stuff anyway. So let's just even use call center operators. Like, you know, it's the same around the world. I think that they have a 80% attrition rate in the first eight months. So you only get like two, three months of value out of them before they quit. No, no millennial wakes up in the morning or graduates from their whatever, whatever um, level of education they come out of and say, I want to be a, I want to be a telephone operator or I want to be a call center person. And it's a stopgap between getting somewhere else. So regardless of the cost of um, or the ability to um, have a more efficiency in there, you're going to need a you're going to need a bot anyway, right? Because uh, no one wants that job, and that's why they're spending a lot of time finding out how they can get self-driving trucks. Because again, truck drivers are another profession that nobody wants anymore, and so whether or not they can actually and, and Scott and I had a good discussion about you know self-driving vehicles. If you can't do them in the cities, that's fine. Let's just figure out a way we can do them on the highway and then they just drop it off so that someone else can pick it up at the edge of the city. Because um, again, no one wants that job either. And so we seem to be okay with, you know, uh, artificial intelligence to replace things that we don't want to do anymore. And, um, but other things, you know, like reading x-ray films, there's still people that want to do that, right? <laughs> you know, other things that people still want to do, they're going to hold on to that a little bit longer. Yeah, and Scott, that, that kind of goes back to my point at the at the beginning, which the the scope of what we want it to do, right? Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. Is it is it just the boring? I, I'm looking for other examples. We you get some really good ones, but I'm wondering what other things are organizations doing to take snippets of either we hate doing it or we suck at doing it or or it can be done faster with a machine. Uh, what are some other examples? So uh, I'll, I'll take one that's very close to cybersecurity and does have actually direct crossover in the financial uh, industry, right? So there's voice fraud lately, automated, you know, automatically generated voices that emulate somebody based on having captured enough syllables and content of, of them speaking earlier, uh, have been used to extract hundreds of thousands of dollars from, from one executive, for example, um, just by sounding like that executive's boss and demanding an emergency wire, right? So, so financial institutions are doing things too, like requiring your voice to be your password. There's one, uh, I won't mention their name, but they say at so-and-so, my voice is my password. And that's how you log in. Well, I said, let's do an experiment, right? Because I, I took all my, my own voice. I spent like three hours training the system and I typed at so-and-so, my voice is my password. And I held it up to the phone during the authentication thinking it might let me in because to my voice, my ears, it sounded just like me, but it did not authenticate. And then I tried my own voice in the same kind of tone, same distance from the mic. Every, I tried to you know, close all variables. I even used isoacoustic isolation and it would not authenticate with the AI generated voice, text to voice, but with my own voice it did. So, and I found out much later, about a half year later that those institutions that are using voice are also using AIs to uncover whether or not AIs are, AIs are being used. 
So we're in this era now where you have AI that's what, so I, I called it a term recently, and I don't know if it, it's gonna catch on. I'm, I'm positive it won't, but it's PAMLA, which is Protagonistic Adversarial Machine Learning Attacks, P-A-M-L-A. It's like adversarial machine learning for good, for the good, right? Um, and, and there's other um, aspects of this uh, as well that are out there, like Adobe, when you, you know, deep fakes, huge problem in, during elections and during all the social unrest we have, right? Or all the, uh, the, the Photoshop images, just take the basic example. Well, Adobe recognized that problem, and now create, they've created an AI that knows when a photo's been Photoshopped, and even it's so accurate that you can hit a big red button, and it's about to be able to reverse that back out to show the viewer what the damn photo looked like before the Photoshop event, whether that was Photoshopped by an AI or a human, right? So we're creating these kind of adversarial, not, not in the traditional sense of the word, but counter AI systems. And I think in cybersecurity, to, to go back to your original question after using those two examples, um, cybersecurity is interesting because it's becoming an arms race. It's be, I feel like it's an arm race for speed or velocity of being able to make those decisions that get in front of an adversary or the adversary's code or human. And it's also for, for accuracy and, and maybe even for complexity at some point too. Um, and so with those three kind of drivers, cybersecurity just gets more and more automated, more and more scary because we are creating an arms race. Every time we develop an AI, the bad guys have to figure out a way around it. And sometimes the only way around an AI really is another AI. And that's Joyce's example of the Terminator on the Terminator, right? <laughs> right back to the second you said that, I was like smiling ear to ear, Joyce. I'm totally analogy. What a visual. Any, any other examples of Terminators on Terminators, Joyce? Any other examples? Um, I think it's, uh, well, I mean, the consumer industry, I'd say, you know, banking consumer industry are probably the next fastest ones to adopt AI. And that's, that's mostly because of all the variability around, you know, you need to keep a client, you need to keep a customer, how do you keep them happy? And how do I do it in a mass way, right? So even though I want to know exactly, you know, what Marco or Scott or Sean wants, can I, can I group you together some way um, where I can say that you're, you guys are going to want this and so that I can buy things that'll match what your needs are, but I make it seem like it's more personal to you. And I think that that's an area where, you don't have enough salespeople or that salesperson might only see Scott once, right? Um, so then you need that muscle memory of AI to be able to say, hey, Scott, I remember when you shopped here in you know, 2003 and don't you need a new pair of shoes now or <laughs> something like that, um, where it'll have greater memory than the kind of you know, revolving door of salespeople that might be in a retail location. So I'd say that that one, yeah, you need a Terminator to, to service another Terminator um, in order to actually understand what they need. Um, so that's another area that I'd say is, a, is probably ripe for the picking in terms of um, using artificial intelligence. It's kind of that personalization and that customer, um, customer value that you can get from, uh, from a consumer experience. So Joyce, it, let's, let, right now. Yeah. let's go from there into the job that we don't want versus the job that maybe we do want, but that mm -hmm. will be more economical and profitable if and maybe done even better if we give sure. it to artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. So I remember one of the way to know if your job is safe or not, you have the quadrant where on the top right, you may have dexterity yeah. and creativity, which also means humanity on my, on my opinion. So like, if you're a lawyer, you're pretty safe, although you could use artificial intelligence to research past cases. So there is a kind of like a way to work together with artificial intelligence, not giving the job, but in enhancing your own performance. And there are other where 
you need to give the news, uh, bad news in the healthcare and you don't want to hear from a machine. So the machine does the research and then, uh, you know, the, the doctor uh, may be trained to give the new in a better way and look at the cure and whatever can be done in, in another. So what do we expect apart from the headline that, in, that bring fear to everybody's like, ah, the robots are coming again, you know, the Terminator is coming, take all your job, what are you going to do with that? I'm, I'm, how far are we from that? And are we really scared or afraid? Are we scared that it's going to, is, is the main question, are they scared that they're going to get their jobs taken away? Um, mm, uh, well, I mean, there is there is a there is that fear that uh, that jobs are going to get taken away. I think that depending on where it is. So I've heard that even call centers they want to put them in small towns um, because they don't have many job options, right? So then that town gets employed. We don't need AI, and we can still go on. But I'd say that um, in terms of where the job fear is going to be, then artificial intelligence needs to far exceed what a human can do. So that radiologist is going to have to make a few mistakes, right? Where they say this, this artificial intelligence actually um, uh, guessed it 99% right and the human was only 70%. So then as a patient, then I'm going, well, geez, do I really want the 45-year-old with the myopic, uh, you know, yeah, he's got to hold my radar, he's got to hold my <laughs> x-ray this far away in order to see it. Um, so that's a, that's, the trust factor will grow, but it is to hire, I, I do find that it's generally to higher standard. So you need to actually see a marked difference between artificial intelligence and, and a human, because um, generally, and we've seen in COVID-19, you want human interaction, right? You know, people have been locked away for a few months now and, and you know, they, they want human interaction. So there's a certain level that we need to figure out what that right balance is between doing the jobs that no one wants to do and some of them do want to do and then where we want to make sure a human is actually there. Because uh, even if we use the x-ray example again, is that even if I think that I have, you know, whatever cancer it is that they're diagnosing, I want someone to actually put, my, put their hand on my shoulder and say, but maybe you're the 1%, right? And the AI doesn't do that. It will just tell you that this is what it, this is, what it is. So yeah. there's a message delivery around this that um, people want. And like I said, COVID-19 taught us that people don't want to be home. Um, by themselves just dealing with machines all day. There will be as much as we consume and, and it's great seeing you guys. It would have been better if we got to see each other in person, right? Yeah. Um, so there's yeah, there's something around that. So Joyce, I'm gonna flip I'm gonna flip the concept on its head. Um, just for fun for a second. So if you think of AI as um as a relationship with another entity, and not that I'm called another person, but but sure. to use another person as an analogy, right? So almost like you, you meet a friend you don't really, for the first time you meet them, you don't really trust them. You have to have experiences together. You usually go mm -hmm. through some kind of quarrel or challenge together that either puts you farther apart or brings you together. And at the end of that relationship, hopefully you have a friend that uh, stays with you, you trust, that challenges you to be better, but it's two ways. So I think it's interesting to look at AI also as a friend that we need to help. And I feel like one of the ways we need to help AI, especially in cybersecurity, that we're totally not ready to do yet as humans, but out of necessity, I believe we will have to do this, is trust the AI through making those decisions and then let it fail knowing that it likely will. And I think the problem with a lot of what AI is kind of trapped right now in some ways as a practice, because we always wait for this 99% e efficacy instead of the 87.5% mm. we start with. 
But when it comes to the value AI can bring to an operation, just like in warfare, you know, using it as an example of cybersecurity, you don't always make perfect decisions as a commander, let's say, right? Mm -hmm. Just enough information to make a decision that has a high enough probability to, to be a good decision. And I think that's all we really should be asking of AI rather than asking for 99th percentiles. And I don't think we're there yet, but out of necessity, pretty soon we're going to have to let AI make the automated decisions with the human out of the loop and see what happens in operational real world environments and be okay with some downtime, just like we are with our human counterparts. Um, and I hate, I hate to say that. I know there's legal questions there. There's accountability problems. There's all sorts of weird stuff that happens there. But we will hit that pretty soon out of necessity. I believe we'll have to. I agree with you. I, I do say that there's a, there's a percentage of my clients that even when you put in an AI, you know, maybe a cognitive automated solution, so not even high end, they, they just don't have the trust to let it go all the way through. Do you know what I mean? Like it still doesn't go all the way through. There's still someone, there's still a human at the end that goes, mm, yep. I, okay, I agree. Um, they still don't let it go all the way through. So then what happens is they don't see the efficiency gains that they would have expected. It didn't save as much money as they thought it was going to. And then like, ha, see, didn't work, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, th there, there, is a, there is a psychological barrier that everyone needs to get by. And I absolutely agree with you, Scott. And, you know, back to our original question, you know, what's the finish line on this one? is that you know when they're doing it they just say let it do the mundane job and you need to trust that the human doesn't need to be there to do all that kind of stuff and then the philosophical question is if you don't need a human why are we doing it at all um so uh you know there's a there, we can talk about that another time <laughs> well yeah I'm gonna, I'm, then i'm gonna give it to sean because i'm sure i want to wrap this conversation uh you know, you know but i get excited so sorry sean about it. car Right. Every time there is the moral compass decision where are we going to kill the lady with the baby or are we going to kill the, the, the five nuns or the old person going on the street? I always wonder, about do we make that decision as humans? I mean, we expect that the artificial intelligence driving a car is going to make the right decision for that. But if I'm the one ride, driving the car, do I have that split second to actually decide who I'm going to kill and who has the better job or the best expectancy of life, or I think I'm gonna just freak out and do whatever I feel like, <laughs> you know? So are we, again, I'm gonna go back there. We're probably expecting a little too much. I mean, that's the iRobot question, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so the iRobot question, and Scott and I were on a panel where we had this exact same discussion where it was interesting watching the reaction of the crowd, because what we said was that, there is, a, there is a car manufacturer right now that actually they've trained the AI to prioritize the driver because they paid for the car, right? So regardless of whether or not it's like, a, I don't know, um, you know, the most important person in the world is just gonna walk by, it'll decide to kill that person and then favor the person that's driving the car. And then the whole audience, when Scott and I were there, went, oh, I can't believe that anyone would buy a car that would prioritize, you know, that you over a pedestrian. And then the question that we had back to the audience was, would you buy a car that didn't prioritize you? And then they went, yeah, that's true. We wouldn't buy a car that didn't. <laughs> so they changed on a dime just don't asking we, that question. Don't right? we are, as an instinct, have preservation for ourselves too. I mean. Yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely. So the audience initially thought it was horrifying that any manufacturer would prioritize someone that bought a car over the people on the street. But then as soon as you said, would you buy a car that didn't prioritize you? And then I was like, yeah, I would never buy a car that didn't prioritize me. So there, there they, changed, they changed within like two seconds um, while Scott and I were on this panel. And so no one's decided whether or not that's the right. It was really interesting. I, I loved the. I loved that everybody was like poo-pooing the manufacturer, and then <laughs> two seconds later, they're like, "Well, yeah, that's the right thing to do." Well, the, um, the good news is that German manufacturer uh, did make that decision, and at least mm -hmm. when you go to buy that vehicle, you know what it is. Imagine right. buying a car yeah. and you don't really have an idea of what might happen in any mm -hmm. given scenario. So I, I think they're the transparent, we didn't talk about this on this one, but uh, Joyce, you remember talking about the transparency aspect of right. this, uh, mm -hmm. all the stuff that Facebook and everybody else in the press are, uh, are having to deal with in terms of account accountability and, and transparency in terms of, because the, the conversation we haven't had when it comes to AI is not about the AI a lot of times, it's about the data uh, and, and, the, and the way that data is structured, shared, reshared, anonymized, then de-anonymized and then correlated back in and vectorized. And you're like, that's the real challenge we're up against that nobody has answers to either because AI, all those, all those, all that, that data that call it a giant data lake in the sky, all the data that gets there got there via algorithmic decisions in the first place. And then you have more algorithms that are created from that data, new models that drive other algorithms somewhere else at some other edge. And so you have AI informing AI back down to AI and nobody Joyce, like you said, has stopped to say, is that a good idea? Or we live in a just-in-time inventory environment that because of COVID and social unrest, we realize, wow, it's weird when you go to the grocery store and there's nothing on the shelves, right? That's a weird moment for humans. But that's because all of that is just in time. And that's because it's all algorithmically derived. You know what I mean? So it's like, uh, I don't know where we, where we go from that. But I think the data is, is an interesting problem space that nobody has good answers because everybody's so enthralled with letting the data find the data, hybrid analytics, I'm deriving data that is hidden, uh, a value that's hidden in the data. But nobody said, what do we actually want to do for our customers or our mission or our, you know what I mean? Like, you don't start with those questions. You're starting with this data jumble and like, let the data scientists figure it out. <laughs> yeah. And, and as we, as we come to a close here, maybe, maybe uh, I'm going to steal Marco's philosophical view on this. Cause I, I picture a world where to your point, Scott, these, the algorithms and the decisions are driven by data. And if we're now relying on algorithms to make decisions for us and those decisions stay the same, are we creating a world of what I call a common denominator where the data just stops being created because it's the same data over and over and over and we end up all on this track, right? Where there is no uniqueness and, and humanity. And so are we, are we setting ourselves up for a world that's kind of boring? if we rely too much on this. Or really dynamic, like the one we're living in right now. We're in 2020. What happened to us? I think AI had a part to play in some of that. Yeah, it, it, it's mm -hmm. interesting. It's interesting and it, it, it'll be a philosophical question about where we want to get to. And I think that needs to be a question that's asked because we shouldn't just build it because we can, right? Um, yep. So we need to get beyond that and say, these are the great reasons why, and these are the great reasons why not. And, um, you know, that, that I, I don't think has been uh, decided or had any consensus around um, from that. So again, we don't know what competition we're in or, or what, what we're trying to win or lose right now. You know what, I think, I think it's, th this is a great moment that 
time that we live in because we are actually taking a good look, a hard look at ourselves as humans. So I, we, we're talking about artificial intelligence, but really we're talking about how, how we think and how we live and our moral and then maybe project it into yes. artificial intelligence. So that's we, kind of are cool. We, are we talking ourselves, are we talking ourselves out of a job, right? <laughs> yes, that too. Um, and, and what job are we talking ourselves out of? Exactly. Exactly. Why well, I can see so many paths to take this conversation and uh, no, no, no doubt we'll certainly continue to have this conversation. Yeah, definitely part two. Uh, and uh, many, many parts. And yeah, I mean, we're going to live this conversation, right? So we may as well talk about it. So um, Joyce, absolute pleasure. Thank you. Really glad you were able to join us, Scott, as always. Pleasure to have you on, man. And uh, you're, you're amazing, amazing noggin. Interesting ways of thinking. Really appreciate it. Marco, I suppose well, you, you have to be there. Uh, I have to. to. I have to be the devil's advocate <laughs> on this stuff, right? <laughs> well, I, really, I think really this, is the, this is the first of many. Uh, it's. Uh, I want to have more conversation like this. So anytime, you like an extra hour spend with us, please let us know. Yep. And that's it. Thanks so much. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you learned something new and this story made you think, then share ITSP Magazine with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our columns. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.